We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. And I'm first excited to welcome the program, my co-host, Dr. Deborah Matthew. Dr. Deb, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest today. We watched him on ships for we years. We did. Watch oh, those motorcycles. And, but, I, but again, but Larry Wilcox, our guest, literally has been in many more things than just ships. And uh, and his voice is synonymous. And I will always remember it. Larry, thanks for stopping by, man, and uh, catching up on the Neil Haley Show. We've been friends on Facebook for a while, and I appreciate you coming by. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank Absolutely. you both. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Deb has come up with some really nice questions for you, and I will be asking the follow-up as we are having this fun uh, this conversation. Go ahead, Dr. Deb. Yeah. Well, you know, that chips role was so iconic, and of course, we all remember that. But can you tell us the story about how did you land that role? Yeah, I had been... Uh... Before that, I'd done a lot of episodic guest star and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the producer, Rick Rosner, saw me in a Hawaii Five-O. And in a movie I did with Farrah Fawcett was my girlfriend called uh, The Great American Beauty Contest. And uh, so he, I went on an interview with him. He asked me, you know, could I ride a motorcycle? Well, first I read for him for a television pilot with Don Meredith. Uh, called Aero Bureau, and it was about uh, cops and helicopters. And uh, that didn't sell. We did it. We had a good time, Dandy Don and myself. And uh, then the next year, he said he wanted me to star in Chips and help him pick the other actor. And uh, by then, you know, I was a young actor. Young actors are boring. They start believing their own press and thinking they're an actor. And uh, that's probably where I was at that time. So I said I wasn't interested in doing chips, that I I was becoming this actor now and better roles and so on. And there wasn't room for another cop show. And anyway, to make a long story short, uh, you know, prostitutes can always be bought. So uh, he offered more money and I eventually did chips and I should be so lucky. I had a great time. Now, so were no you a motorcycle rider when you went started the show? I was, uh, but you know, I, I humbly, I kind of got embarrassed. I, I learned so much from the CHP and we went through the CHP motorcycle training and, uh, you know, we got very proficient on the motorcycles, both Eric and myself. We had to lay them down and wreck them and do high-speed braking and, you know, make the rear end come around to the front end, uh, high-speed braking. And just some really – and the really difficult part was turning figure eights in a real small area, uh, balancing brake and clutching on the motorcycle. We had Robert Pine who came, and he just could not ride the motorcycle. So he basically did entrances and exits. Um, but good guy, but the motorcycle wasn't his forte, but he's a good actor. Did you ever get hurt? Did you ever have any accidents? I did. I had a few, you know, if you've been on a motorcycle, it's a matter of time yeah. and they're not safe instruments, no matter who you are, kind of like helicopters, but, um, that's why insurance is so high, but, you know, I wrecked a few. And then when they were trying to perfect, you know, we rode the motorcycles. That's number one, Eric and I, number two is, were they ever on trailers? Yes, they were for close-ups and because they had to maintain focus on two people exactly next to each other. And they didn't want the noise of the motorcycle in the background. Um, in perfecting those trailers, they built some really weird ones in the beginning. And for, for a while, I had one where the front wheel was on the trailer and the back wheel was on the ground, which sounds great. 
till you go around a corner and it doesn't turn and flips you off the motorcycle, you know? So it flipped me about 30 feet in the air. And I, luckily I had that rubber gun in my holster so that I hit my hip on that gun, which probably would have broke my hip. Otherwise, Eric had a very tragic accident. He, he, they gave him last rites and, uh, he, they said he was dead. And so he had, um, come in on really hot and put on his brakes and, the camera truck wasn't in the position that they had rehearsed it. And, uh, so he, he uh, actually laid the bike down, but it high sided. So what happens is the motorcycle comes in, goes down like this, and then bam, like that comes back right at you and throws you in front of it and then crashes into you, broke his chest, his sternum and ruptured his aorta. They thought, and uh, they were going to fly him to Houston to open heart surgery. In those days, that's the only place you went for open heart surgery is how long ago it was. And, uh, but he ended up living and uh, God bless him. He's here today. So yeah, everyone had accidents doing stunts. I had accidents and oh, wow. chips reunion. I had accidents doing fight scenes and hitting a tree and on top of a bus and took oh, out wow. the cameraman, hit him in the back of the head, almost took his head off. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, I, I think about those injuries. And so you did a lot of your own stunts. It sounds like I did. The, I did quite a bit, but uh, actors always qualify that because actors always talk about, yeah, they did stunts. And would you do ride the motorcycle in it? I mean, did you really do stunts? No, I didn't. I did stunts on the jet skis. Cause I love those. And that was easy. I did stunts on horses and rodeo stuff. Cause I do that. Um, but I didn't catch on fire and I didn't do those really bad uh, wrecks and stuff. The stuntmen did them and they were very talented and, and crazy in those days. Cause there wasn't much CGI special effects and they just wrecked. <laughs> wow. So how much of your character was Larry? How much of you did you bring into the role? Quite a bit, I think, because, you know, I, I always think that um, chips was probably the most, one of the most difficult roles I ever had because it was so boring. So, you know, when you have a character that says 10, four, every fifth page and is the straight man for Mr. Gorgeous, Eric Estrada, right. Then what do you do? You're the white envelope walking around, right. And uh, white bread. And so, um, you know, I had to try to figure out ways that didn't, look like an actor begging for camera time and do it in subtle ways that uh, created some subtext, substance, uh, charm, loyalty, and character qualities that would grow over time. Uh, little subtle things that I did. Sometimes the direct the producers would get mad because they wanted me to be gaga goo goo when Eric's singing a song and dancing on stage. And I said, I'm not doing that. You know, that's, that's just ridiculous. And so I would do it a different way and they couldn't cut around it, you know, but it, it worked. And I think that the chemistry between the two actors is what was the really meat, if you will, the glue of the show. Do you think that it would have been a success if you guys weren't getting along so well in the chemistry and all that? Well, we weren't getting along in the beginning. Uh, later on, we started getting along. In the beginning, we were just two ego punks. And uh, I, you know, I take as much blame. Uh, you know, I first of all, I was from a very narrow myopic culture. Uh, 
So I was a Wyoming cowboy that had grew up in Wyoming, didn't know anything about anything, but thought he knew everything. And, uh, and I, now I'm exposed to a Puerto Rican who grew up in Harlem, who's bigger than life and is, you know, a Latin cha-cha-cha guy. And, um, so at first I think I judged that and, uh, unfairly. And then, uh, you know, pretty soon our relationship deteriorated. You know, Eric was all about promoting himself at that time. And I was too. I'd, he was just a, a more attractive product to promote in terms of marketing. And so I think we clashed for a while. Now, you know, uh, and, I, and I don't do public relations for actors, but now we really get along great. We have a great time. He's hilarious. And he, yes, he's bigger than life. He loves every girl. He tells them they're his favorite, each, each one that comes in. So he's comedic and he knows that he's, he's not unlike Ponch. So we get along good now. So back then to answer your question, I think we just worked hard on camera to make it look charming and chemistry was there. Well, and you've done all kinds of things after Chip. So what are what are some of your really favorite experiences after the show? Oh, geez, I had so many. Uh, you know, my children are the, the best contribution I'll make in this world. So that was great. Uh, always will be. And I, you know, especially at my age now, they're the greatest joy of my life. Um I'm over being, I don't really have a need to be great anymore. You know, all that greatness chasing gets boring. Um, but <clears throat> I enjoyed the greatness chasing during my life. I enjoyed uh, different roles like Dirty Dozen was fun uh, with my friend, uh, the late the Andrew McLaughlin was a great director and he'd use me in almost everything he larry i'm gonna get you in this next movie i'm doing you're gonna star in it with blah 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 and okay great andy and and, I, and then he would let me kind of write my characters and you know i had really fun and being all these different weirdos that i gotta be so that was fun i gotta direct two of the highest rated shows on chips so directing was fun and you know, directing is a lot of hard work because you're there the first and the last to leave. And then you got to go home and do homework. And, and then if you're acting also, like in my case, it makes it even more difficult. Luckily, Chips wasn't, you know, I wasn't having to do some Marlon Brando scene. It was uh, John Baker, which uh, ten four wasn't too hard. Um, you know, after that, I, uh, you know, I got to take advantage of a lot of neat things. I got a lot of neat toys, you know, Porsches and Rolls Royces and horses and all the indulgent lipstick that you get from being on a television series. I flew in a lot of airplanes with pilots. I did uh, war games in A7s against F-16s, uh, and uh, we really did them. Uh, we fought all the Air Force cadets up in uh, Colorado Springs and uh, three a7s and then i flew it i'm a pilot by the way also and so i got to fly and, and and then we lost our hydraulics and we almost had to eject because we had no nose wheel steering so i was with the top gun pilot but the problem was uh you know we had to catch a, a cable with the hook on the back of the a7 and he'd never done it in his life because he's an air force pilot not a navy pilot and so we had to do it and they said, if you don't do it, we eject you and you go through the glass of the canopy, it shoots you out mm -hmm. and then you'll pass out and you'll wake up and the, your uh, parachute will be open. So that was fun. We caught the wire, by the way, so we didn't have to eject 
I had some of me wanted to eject and some didn't. I got to race cars and do the celebrity racing. And then I did regular racing. And, uh, and then I started uh, producing. I produced a television series for five years all over the world, the Ray Bradbury Theater. Yeah, I put that. That's a sad story, really. I put that deal together with HBO. Uh, then we put it uh, together with Atlantis Films in Canada, and they screwed me. They, we raised the money for that project. We signed. We had the copyright at the time, and then, then we gave. They asked if they could please have the copyright because they're helping us distribute it. And after five years of producing it and doing all that work and bringing a, an award-winning project to HBO, then Atlantis Films did a very snarky, sneaky little thing. They they did what's this is what smart asses do in the business. They sold their share. So someone says, "Well, what do you mean they sold their share?" Well, you owned a you owned the company, right, Larry? Yeah, and they were partners. Yeah, so they just sold their share. Well, I guess they could do that. Not really, but someone might rationalize that they can. Not only did they sell their share, who'd they sell it to? Goldman Sachs. Oh, of course. And so where who owns it now? Because they're playing that on Amazon and all kinds of places. You can rent the Ray Bradbury Theater. Are you making any money? How much money did they sell all their their assets for? About three, four hundred million dollars. And how much did you make? Zero. And so when I called them to ask them, that was their, well, we sold our share. We, yeah, but did you stipulate in the contract that I was the partner? So 50% of any deal thereafter, I get it. So I, those are the kind of slime dogs that you have to deal with in the business. They always have a smart aleck rationale, but they're just parasitic and they're toxic for the film business. So, but mm -hmm. I had a good time producing it yeah. Made good money while I was producing it. And then I produced the Dorothy Stratton st story, The Death of a Playmate, and a bunch of other stuff I won't bore you with. And now I do technology. So uh, I'm into all kinds of really neat technology with UVC light and ultraviolet light. Uh, based on how we do it, we have nine patents. The company's called UVCscience.net. And... Um, we are able to, we're the, we think we're the only company in the world that, uh, and we haven't found any else that can do this yet, is that we can kill all bacteria and viruses in literally one second uh, and for up to 10 feet away. So any COVID or any kind of uh, virus on a surface or in the air, so in air conditioning, HVAC systems, we were inside the actual tube and we kill all that bacteria flowing through your air conditioning or uh, in the air. And then if you have, a, say, a surgical center, we kill it all with this great big device you can see at uvc.net. And um, we had about close to $20 million of pre-orders already. We just did our first HVAC show and uh, all the major manufacturers want to put it inside their system. So I like that. And and the last thing I'm doing is I'm presently negotiating two very, very large funding deals that I would be able to go back to friends and family and fund things that they've always wanted to do cause, and give them a leg up in life like I got, which I'm humbled for and grateful for. That's all. Wow. That's you know what, Larry? We're going to have to have you back on just to talk about UVC because I have one. I know. I, as a medical doctor, now yeah, all of a sudden so, I've got that website. Gonna 
to Dr. Deb. We have to have a round, a, a part two for sure. And I'd love, love to talk off air. Where's, where's the best place people can find information on you and stuff, Larry? Uh, my website is LarryWilcox.net, but the UVCScience.net probably is the only one that's been tested uh, by a laboratory in a university medical facility to make sure that our representations and warranty are true. So you can go to the website and find it. Well, we appreciate it, Larry. Thanks Thank again. you. Appreciate All right. it. All right. Have You're a good listening one. and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. And I'm excited to welcome to the show the author of How to Retire and Not Die, Gary Serac. Gary, how are you? And you know what? When we think about the stories and we don't want to die. And now more than ever, we're learning people are li living a lot longer that they really have to planning for retirement is not a 10 year process. It could be a 30, 40 year process. You know, Gary, that's the, that's the surprising factor and how we have to be healthy. We have to do so many different things than, you know, generation, my generations, my parents and the generation before that ever thought of retirement. Oh, yeah. And it's funny. I was thinking of the lyrics from The Who, I want to die before I get old. And Pete Townsend wrote that song back in 1970. And I thought, you know, those lyrics always landed with me. I said, who, what's old? Well, old has gotten older and older and older. I mean, I, I think about that. And people don't understand. They, they can be in a plan an extra 30, 40 years. And that's really legit. My actuaries and my insurance companies tell me, some of my policies now go to 120, Neil. I mean, I haven't seen anybody live that long, but I had a client go to 103. But but it's kind of amazing to me, you know, how our life expectancy is extended. And I don't see that changing. In fact, medical science and all the stuff that's happening kind of is extending us even longer. So I look at this and I say, that's a bunch of time to fill. How do you fill it? It's tricky. You're either going to fill it uh, enjoying your life or living in a nursing home or an assisted living away from everyone. It's because that's how important it is in the planning process. But we found out something from your own research, like we should have Gary Serac research from you talking to so many people that you've built a research or a, at least a small pool of people that you're polling that continuing to work part-time makes a person better off after they retire than quitting cold turkey. Why is that? Well, it goes back to structure. Neil, having some structure, knowing that you're going to be doing something part-time, however days a week, it could be two days a week, three days a week, five days a week, one day a week, but knowing that you have a structure. And I think that's critically important. Community is huge. People don't realize they lose their community, the people they've known for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is, their time frame, they become friends, maybe not great friends, but friends, social friends, you talk, you know, their kids, their grandchildren, all, this story. all of a sudden that's gone. And, and that's, that's really dramatic. So I am a huge fan of gradually working to not working if you wish to do that. And, and plenty of my clients keep working. I mean, they're, I had someone tell me the other day, he said, yeah, I'll work till I'm about 85. I said, okay, that's pretty long. And his wife said, nah, he'll just die at his desk. And I said, okay. And he says, yeah, I probably will. I mean, it, it's kind of nonchalant, but pretty legit, Neil. I, I look at 
so many friends. I, I'll give you a great story. Last week, I had a lady come in. She is the manager of a large department store. And she sat down with her husband. She said, I don't know if we can retire. I got your name from somebody. So I was referred to you. And I said, thank you and all that stuff. I said, so tell me what you're thinking. And she said, well, she said, I'm thinking that I really hate my job. I've been doing it a very long time. I, I had to close the store last night, 1130, because the people who were supposed to close it didn't show up for work. And she said, I just don't want to do this anymore. I said, but I make a lot of money. I said, well, define a lot of money. And she did. And I said, yeah, you make a lot of money. And I said, how are you doing financially? She said, well, I'm a little concerned because I really don't want to work anymore, but can I make it financially? So we played around with the numbers. And I said, the only way in the world you can make it financially is you need to get a part-time job. And she put on the biggest smile and she said, so if I work part-time, I could actually quit this job. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, how much money do I need to make? I said, well, yeah, maybe if you make 20 grand, 30 grand a year. And she said, oh, I could do that easy. I said, then there's no reason for you not to pull the trigger. And she said, well, my bonus comes in May. I'm going to wait for my bonus and then I'm done. <laughs> and I said, cool. So she would, they were so, so excited, Neil. I mean, her husband just looked at me and says, you have no idea. We're walking out the door. He said, I, I can't begin to tell you how happy you made my wife. So later that week, I got an email from her on Facebook message or something. And she said, I just have to tell you, I have had the biggest smile on my face since I was at your office. I am going to do what we talked about and I can't wait and just want to say thank you. She said, I've slept better the last three nights than I've slept in the last year. See, that's the, and that, see, that's the thing. And that's the stories. We're going to talk about more of those stories. And that's one working because she has to work, mm -hmm. least to keep up with that. Uh, but not have to burn herself out. But other stories of people you're seeing specifically enough that they needed to keep working part-time because it, it it just part of their light lifestyle. They, it just, it's part of them. They just don't know how to keep busy doing nothing, right? That's it's the in their DNA, Neil. It's in their DNA. I, I, a friend of mine, one of my best friends in the whole world was, we had lunch last week because it was first official day of semi-retirement. He's now working two days a week, uh, about six hours, two days a week, and the other three days in the middle of the week. So he goes in on Monday, he goes in on Friday. I said, why didn't you pick one of those other days so you take long weekends? He said, yeah, I should have done that. I said, well, can you fix it? He said, I don't know if I can or not. He said, I kind of already made this up. I said, okay. I said, well, shortly you'll be able to fix it. So anyway, he's he goes in and does his job two days a week, and that's it. And I said, okay, now the key is how do you fill the other three days? And he said, you know, Gary, that's why we're having lunch. He said, I'll buy, you help. I said, okay. So we sat down and we mapped out all the different things that he could do for those three days. And Neil, we probably had a list of 15, 20 items. I mean, exercising, he likes to swim. So he's going to start swimming at the Y, just all kinds. Of, and there's a volunteer thing that he's thought about doing for years that he's never done. But one of the things that really struck me is he's an avid reader. And I said, have you ever thought about joining a book club? And he said, I've never had time. I said, well, now you have time. And he said, well, where would I find out? I said, well, check with the library. They're big on books. And he laughed. And I said, they, they do a lot of book stuff. I said, they would know. So sure enough, he checks with the library. There's a, a book club that'll fit exactly the segment of reading. He likes to do historical fiction. They have a book club for that. And he said, well, that's cool. And he said, I'll meet like 12, 15 new people. I said, yeah, you only have book discussions, you're during coffee and you meet people you never knew. 
those are kind of cool things, Neil, but that's what we came up with over lunch. And, and the idea that he's working is really valuable because he's got that community again. So he's got a community there and it gives him time to develop his new community. And that's what I think really is so important. Community is such an important thing. Either you have a community and work, you're getting to talk to a lot of people, you're not, but if you're stuck in a specific situation where you're not interacting, you're watching the television or you're interacting with the same person all the time and not getting a break from that person, it can become really draining. And it can be draining that you don't feel like you're part of society anymore, that you are successful. I think the great movements happening with the baby boomer slash even Gen X, my age movement, meaning that they're going to continue to work a lot longer than any uh, other populations ever in retirement. And the reason is it's going to happen is because they're going to live longer. And secondly, because they have kind of chosen to do, if they want to continue to work, they really love what they're doing and they don't want to stop. And society's not going to look down at them anymore. That's the thing. Well, one thing that's really happened is the work ethic has changed. And the fact that you're willing to go to work and do what you're supposed to do and show up when you're supposed to show up is a very big deal. And most of my employers that I work with are having terrible times with uh, people calling off and stuff. But what he told me is he said, you know, what's really unique, he said, and, and I'm not trying to throw, you know, I'm not trying to slam anyone, he said, but there's a segment of my population, he said, older, they never do that. He said, Gary, they show up every day, they have a different thought process of what this is about. And he said, it's really refreshing. He said, so I'm kind of slanting hiring more of that generation than the other generation, because I have more stability. And I thought, well, that's an interesting flip because usually they've been trying to get rid of us because we get older. Hey, it's not going to happen anymore. It's not happening because we are now the biggest population in the United States, meaning I can't believe I'm saying we, I'm 50. So I'm not there yet, Gary, but I'll, I'll soon be there. Uh, that uh, at least in that process of 50 and older than any population in the United States, because we're not growing as a country. The only thing is, uh, again, is uh, Latinx is the the population that's growing the largest. So people need to learn to speak Spanish very soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but everybody else, it's dying. It's it's not, there's no growth. There's no thing. And, and if people don't die and they read your book, and retire and not die, then we're going to be in better shape. But the thing that's happening that's concerning the healthcare industry is health. That yes, we're uh, older populations are living longer, but they're being in assisted livings, uh, nursing homes, dementia, Alzheimer's. It's really, really a bad thing. So we, you need to educate them that don't just work to retire. Yeah. in a way to retire, keep working, keep that mind going. Cause isn't it important to keep your mind going? Is that there's such research out there about oh, keeping that. Neil, it's huge. And, and, you know, that's one thing. Community is important, but using your brain is a big deal and, and way more, you know, I, I have a client of mine, he just retired and he's going to watch 22 years of NCIS. That's his retirement. And he was very serious. He said, when I retired, he, they met in my office. We sat in the office, he and his wife. And I said, you know, financially, they're fine. I said, so what are you going to retire? He says, oh, I have it all figured out. I'm going to watch 22 seasons of NCIS. I've never gotten to watch it. And I'm really excited. And he said, and there's all these spinoff ones. He said, I could do this for a year. And I looked at his wife and she's just shaking her head. 
And the other thing about this guy is he likes chocolate chip cookies. He's a very good baker and he eats his own chocolate chip cookies. And I'm thinking this is not a good scenario. Two months later, I see them at a restaurant and uh, he's definitely been eating his chocolate chip cookies and he just looked heavier. And I said, so how's it going? He said, oh my God. He said, I'm having such a good time watching NCIS. And I just looked at his wife and she's just shaking her head. Oh boy. And I said, so what are you doing besides that? And he says, no, that's what I've been doing. And I said, okay, so you're kind of sitting on a couch watching NCIS. He said, oh no, I have a lounge chair. I mean, he just was clueless. You got to have something else in your life. He wasn't using, this is a man that ran a very successful national sales program for a company. I mean, this guy made this company millions and millions and millions. I have no idea how much he made it, but it was a lot because they paid him well. And here he is sitting on a couch vegging. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not what I expected you to do in retirement. And if you do this, this is not going to turn out the way you think. Yes, you'll end up somewhere else. And then once your health goes down, it's over. And yeah. the older you get, your health goes down or you break your hip or different things. That's why you have to stay active and keep going. Where can people purchase your book? Such great stories. Again, do not. I think that if 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 society's looking at a population is not going to quit. They're going to keep working and they'll work well. Hire older people. I think that's going to be the thing. And maybe that discrimination against the older, the elderly is going to end with this new movement. Best place. I, uh, Amazon is good and GarySurak.com. I uh, Both of those work well. If they get to my website and they order it off my website, I will sign the book for them personally and and make it to whoever they want it made to if it's a gift. By the way, Neil, the biggest thing that happened, I was going to tell you this, Christmas, we sold more books than we've ever sold. And almost all of them were presents for people who are about to retire. It was really cool. I mean, I would get emails from me, hey, this guy's your retire. Please sign this book. One guy bought 10 books for 10 people that were all in retirement. I thought, you know, that's a, a really good present. I'm a little self-serving, but it's a pretty good present for someone who doesn't have it figured out. So We appreciate it, Gary. Great stuff, yes, man. Hey, Neil, right. thank you. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show and also the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome Celebrity caregiver Dave Nassani. You like that word celebrity. And the reason you're celebrated by so many people, especially TV shows and all these different things, but you were like anyone else before that. And well, you were and I still am, Neil. I mean, I'm, I'm no Brad Pitt or anything like that, but a true celebrity gets the best of both worlds when, when he's known by his clients and his contacts and his, his uh, friends and family who see him differently now but I could still walk down the block and not be mobbed by the Pavarazzi, right. you know. But so what you are going to teach, because I see this as so much, you are a, a mentor in so many ways of listening to you and having conversations with you. I learn from everyone, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't learn from everyone that you talk to, you're not growing in life. You're not going to achieve anything That's because right. if you're not open to criticism, but also open to ideas, those ideas could be good. They could be bad. They could be indifferent. But if you, when I see people that are not open to ideas, that's a mistake because ideas are the generate, generate life, but you're going to teach people that, if, that they're going to get to relax in Mexico and Acapulco at a villa, but you're going, what kind of coaching are you going to bring? You're going to teach people to, to learn, to put their oxygen mask on first. So they could be dealing with having a lot of kids. They could be dealing with 
dealing with a really tough situation in their lives, something where they're forgetting about themselves. They might have a loved one that's going through a lot of hard times. They could be, they could be basically serving the most difficult people like nurses, doctors, they, they were there constantly or their, their business is constantly their customers. They could be a waiter. They could be anybody that learns to deal with burnout. Define burnout for me, Dave. Well, first of all, there's great. Anytime we suffer loss, you know, uh, your girlfriend breaks up with you. Uh, uh, someone dies. The accountant says, you know, bankruptcy is the only way you're going to have go through this grief process. And, you know, grief is talking about denial and, and this isn't really happening to me. Anger. I'm so pissed off. This is happening to me, you know, bargaining. How can I get out of this and depression? And then finally that wonderful place called acceptance Burnout is when you're you're in the midst of it all. You know, the hardest time of my life when my wife had the stroke was that three-year grief period because, you know, she was angry and bitter most of the time and it was taking it on me. I wasn't feeling any love or compassion. I wasn't feeling any appreciation for the sacrifices I was making. It's, it's when resentment starts building up. You know, you start saying, uh, you know, I'm not feeling appreciated and then you start getting bitter. So we are doing this caregiver and it's not just a caregiver, it's a burnout mastermind and retreat because the best place to learn how to take care of yourself is from other people who have had to learn it themselves, right? It, in other words, a support group. So we're going to go over things like the grief process because um, everything that a burned out person is going through or a caregiver is going through or a burned out nurse or a doctor, et cetera, you know, it has to do with um, not being able to handle it, being overwhelmed. So we talk about the grief process. We talk about having boundaries, the same things that you were dealing with before you ever became a caregiver or before you ever got burned out, you just weren't dealing with them. You know, it's when your phone is on 2% to battery and, and oh my gosh, you know, I saw it when I was on 20%, but I didn't do anything about it. Or your gas gauge is on quarter tank, eighth of a tank. And next thing you know, you're on the side of the road because you didn't fill it up. So that's what we want to teach people, how to take care of themselves caring for yourselves, getting organized. You know, um, a lot of caregivers, a lot of people who are burned out, yeah. they're burned out because of decisions and choices that they've made and they're not organized. They just need to get organized. Uh, learning how to ask for help. So many people don't want to ask for help. I could do it myself, you know? Yeah. I've done it myself all my life, but now you you're going through all this stuff. become harder in so many ways and go through so much where you're not asking for help. You're not relaxing. You're not getting the proper sleep. You're not getting the proper diet. What you've learned going to these retreats is proper dieting, eating healthy, eating yeah. right. Diet is an amazing sleeping, diet. It's all exercise. And sugar Listen free. to Dave and how he's doing in this life. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. Quote That's that right. one, Dave. You, Even <laughs> the Bible says, love yourself as you love your others. People need to learn how to say no. They're, they're, they're overcommitted because, you know, hey, can you do this? Yeah, I guess so. They need to learn how to say no. They need to learn about perfectionism. If you're a perfectionist, man, you're doomed for failure. Uh, if you're into isolation, you keep everything inside, you know, uh, that's no good either. And and then there's burnout and resentment and you need to learn how to delegate. You know, there are so many things that you need to learn. And what the difference between sadness and depression, 
And sometimes, you know, maybe you need an antidepressant if you're going through something that right. is giving you clinical depression. You know, we've gone through so many suicides with celebrities, you know, Robin Williams, Kurt Cobain, Anthony Bourdain. Everyone needs mental health, wellness. You've learned it in caregiving and you can teach others to help them through the challenges they have. Best and then there's life after caregiving. So many right. people are, are absorbed with their identity. Well, I'm a caregiver now. Your loved one has died and passed on. Now they're going to depression. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Because that was my identity now. And they they can't go to the next step because Dave, they're so caught best, up in, in that. People can go where? Uh, caregiverdave.com will take you to my other uh, website to sign up for it. And if you want to know what that website is, I started a new company called Academy of Caregivers. And therefore it's academyofcaregivers.com. It will tell you everything about the Acapulco Mastermind and Retreat that you need to know how to sign up. It's got my phone number. You can talk to me, ask me any questions you want. All right. Pictures, pictures, pictures. If you want to see what this millionaire, billionaire uh, villa that's got uh, 18 beds looks like and the uh, on-site chef who prepares gluten-free and sugar-free food, all the drinks, all the alcohol. <laughs> Hello. All right. Because um, sometimes, sometimes caregivers need a, a little drink to take the edge off, you know. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Toss C3 podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host and founder of Toss C3, Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Neil. How are you today? Okay. I think this is going to be three podcasts. We don't know because uh, we're going to be breaking this down. It's almost like when we were saying the year in review for 2023, what to expect in 2023. But this one's so huge because there are so many different companies out there that say they, they are cybersecurity experts. And so I came up with a topic today the top 10 important questions to consider when hiring a cybersecurity firm. Because the thing is, when you're going to hire somebody that's experts in cybersecurity, you're experts in IT, Greg, because you've been in this industry forever, but your focus is cybersecurity. Not all IT professionals really focus on cybersecurity. And that's the first question to ask. Isn't that true that that's not their secret sauce? Yeah, I, I would say that that's a critical you know, ask them like, what percentage of your service delivery is cybersecurity versus, let's say, help desk or just general IT support? And that's a really important question. You know, you'll find that in 10 to 20%, sometimes 25% of the average MSP or IT partner is, you know, doing cybersecurity beyond just what we call endpoint protection which today's language, you know, some buzzwords, EPP is endpoint protection um, and response, you know, so that's the endpoint response. So those are kind of where they focus. Um, if they say that they're doing cyber, they put in a firewall, they can manage the firewall, but do they really know the tricks and are they keeping up with, you know, preventative measures on the policy side of the firewall to make sure that it's properly being handled? Do they have multi-factor authentication built into the firewall? So not only do you have multi-factor on the outside, but you have multi-factor when using VPN, or if you're just coming in through the network externally, that's another cre uh, key and critical area. So those are the areas where you hear IT providers, you know, endpoint protection and firewalls. Um, everything else would tend to be outsourced and really not specialized in. 
Now, the other thing that you'll hear is, well, we're cybersecurity experts and we're able to do a external vulnerability and internal vulnerability scan and penetration test. All right. There's two companies out there. They make an in-the-box or out-of-the-box cloud-based solution where they ha have basically an executable uh, application that they run from within your system on an AD logged in as admin. And now that system does all the secret sauce and pulls on the information and automatically generates the report and basically gives the IT provider a script on what to say and 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 so on to present it to you to get you all nervous so that you buy cybersecurity with them. You know, but if, if you went one layer deeper in the onion, they wouldn't have the answers because they're not specialists in it. Those are really the, the real areas. Yeah. Okay. So when specific what specific areas does your cybersecurity firm offer and how do these services align with our organizational needs? Well, that's a really great question because, you know, if we're talking in general, you know, I don't know what an organization's needs are, you know, specifically, but in general, let's talk about what an organization wants, right? They, they want to increase shareholder value, right? They want to increase the effectiveness and efficiency of anything and everything and anyone and everyone, right? And they, they want to make more money than they did the year before and they want to mitigate risk. And, and those are the areas that all organizations usually uh, manage to, especially if you're a CEO, that's what you manage to. So what does that mean in the cyber world? Well, number one, cyber attack globally today, uh, which was up 500% in 2022 over 2021 and estimated to be up a whopping 800% in 2023 wow. over 2022. Drum roll, please. Yes, ransomware. That's right. You guessed it. Ransomware. So the first thing I'd want to do is make, make sure that whoever I'm talking to can guarantee that, that we won't get ransomware if we go with you. And that'll put them leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else on the list if, if they say that they can do that. Um, that's the first thing. The next thing is, is that, well, how do I protect against all of those people that are in my organization working from home computers and working from, you know, non- uh, business, you know, com computers that we didn't like vet and say that they can work from because not every company can run like a state agency or like a federal agency where they hand a, you know, a, a computer to them that's fully secured and fully approved and you can only use this device. That's not realistic. You know, bring your own device is such a big part of our entrepreneurial culture and business culture in the U.S. and probably worldwide. So that's really important. So you need to make sure that you have protections in place against those. Again, ransomware can come into your network from a home computer that's not patched because they're connected to your VPN. Your VPN now sees, uh, you know, the the internal hard drives of the servers and all of that that they start to encrypt, and then before you know it, everybody's shut down. <laughs> you know, the next area that you want to do is make sure that this company has not what's called a network operation center, a NOC. You want to make sure that they have and that they manage a SOC, a security operations center. It's totally different. It's not the same thing. And they usually aren't run out of the same building or same, same room, at least. And what this is going to be doing is taking event information using a SIM, which is you know, assist, you know, system information and event logs and all that monitoring and bringing it into this environment that they call a SIM, S-I-E-M. And then it, it sifts and sorts. Now, the reason you need something like this that's 
a database and a system is because there's literally hundreds of thousands of these events that come in uh, in, a, in a day or a week, depending on the size of the organization. And a human being or 10 human beings you know, couldn't sift through them properly. So what this, this system does in the SOC is it goes through all those events and it prioritizes them. You know, red alert, orange, yellow, and then if it's green, it just doesn't show up. And then you can take actionable uh, attacks against those, you know, threat hunt if you need to, identify the issues, the implementation, the analysts can really dig in and find out what's going on to prevent something that's probably already in the network. Now, I hate saying this to people, but, you know, most companies have already been hacked and they don't even know it. And, and we identify that when we do an initial test on their readiness for ransomware prevention. Wow. I didn't expect this. We have nine more questions to go. That's nine more podcasts. <laughs> I'm glad because again, this is great information. And if you liked what you heard, and then when you're in this process of deciding if you're going to look for an organization to fix and help your IT needs, especially cybersecurity, is go to tossc3.com and schedule a call with Greg today. And Greg's going to take you through some of these questions that he was able to answer today. So I appreciate it, Greg. Oh, you're welcome, Neil. It's been a pleasure and lots of fun. All right. That was the Toss C3 podcast, guys. Take Hi, everyone, and welcome to the World Doc Allen podcast. I'm excited to welcome the program. World Doc Allen, Lindemann Doc. What's going on, man? How are you? We're doing really well here, Neil, and you? I'm doing fantastic. And today's topic is mismanaged care. What is mismanaged care? Well, of course, that's kind of a, a play on words. It's really managed care. And managed care was designed by uh, the uh, insurance companies and other agencies to control the cost of care by controlling the relationship between the doctor and the consumer. How does mismanaged care actually increase the cost of healthcare? Well, it does that in two ways. The first way is that it the amount of administrators uh, increases exponentially. For example, in the last two decades, administrators have increased 3,200%. Physicians have increased 150%. The second one, the second way that this mismanaged care costs money is that patients can't get early care. They are relegated to getting a more advanced care for more advanced conditions. And of course, that costs more and gets us worse outcomes. What has mismanaged care done to your access to health care? Well, if you take, for example, something concrete like PSA screening, you know, we had uh, out of uh, Washington, D.C., we had the recommendation to test less PSAs. Of course, in the first year or two, everybody looked really smart because there was less prostate cancer. What we see now, of course, is a backlash. In other words, not only is there more prostate cancer, but they're more, it's more advanced. So the treatment is more difficult and more people are dying from it. What can you do about that? Well, it's difficult. You know, one person can't do too much, but if you join a pack, for example, the way uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving did in the early 60s, you don't remember that. Um, but also we have the, um, um, let's see here. <laughs> I'm just... 
mothers against drunk driving. Drunk driving and the anti-smoking uh, situation. Yeah. So they made, they got a lot of headway, a lot of progress with their, um, when they joined together. And that's what we need to do. We need consumer groups working together. Rationing how, oh yeah, that's so, so true. And it's just like that what's happening in, you think these organizations are helping and they're not. They're, 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 they're causing more problems to the healthcare system, which is broken. And that's why you wrote the book, Modern Medicine. And people could check that out where? That's at, it's at Amazon and it's Modern Medicine Lindemann. And we have a hard copy and also a Kindle. All right. Appreciate it, Doc. Thanks, Neil. All right. That was the World Doc Allen podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. We're highlighting an entrepreneur, Mark Beggert of Fabia Lingua, CEO. How are you, Mark? Thanks for stopping by. And I love that you are wearing a hat I used to wear for years as a former teacher. And also former educational consultant and stuff. And you're helping in languages. And it's such an important thing. So tell me your background, Mark, and how you got involved in this company. Yeah, sure, Neil. I'd uh, love to. So my background, I've been in tech for the last 20-odd years or so. Um, I've actually been uh, mobile application platforms, um, building content, edutainment, uh, educational businesses. In fact, I one of the companies that I founded about uh, you know about a decade ago, we took public on the Nasdaq. So I've had a lot of really great experience. Um, believe in the power of, of 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 mobile and devices and penetration, and now really believe in the power of gaming, mobile gaming especially. So what we're doing, um, Fabulingua is like Pokemon for language learning. We're helping kids learn languages through mobile games. And, it's, and we're also helping teachers use Fabulingua as a platform to engage kids in class or engage them as tutors so that they can teach these languages and have a whole lot of fun uh, while doing it. And so we use a science-backed method and it's uh, it's uh, it's really effective. It's a sort of an amazing, fun way. I wish we'd have had it when I was a kid. Well, Mark, it sounds like that. What kind of led you to think that know that mobile gaming is going to be the way to get these kids to engage, especially in the classroom or outside the classroom? Well, I mean, you just, you know, I've got two kids. I've got a uh, sort of now a 15 year old and a, and a 12 year old, and I've watched them grow up and I've seen how, uh, you know, the digital transformation of education um, at really the early stage. And of course, it was accelerated through COVID. Um, through sort of the digitization of a lot of the different um, classes and curriculum they're working on. But but that was sort of EdTech 1.0, right? That was where we basically took offline curriculum and put it online, okay? And now EdTech 2.0 is going to be sort of mobile and digital native learning. So we're basically taking new modalities and thinking about learning in a whole different way because we can apply all these incredible technologies to the learning process. And engagement is key. Um, you know that, Neil, I know that, that whenever we're engaged in something, we're much more apt to be able to actually sort of learn it for it yeah. to sink in and for us to retain that knowledge over the long term. Did you hear, Mark, about student engagement, how it's lacking so much in the yeah. classroom? Your public education, education in general, student engagement's gone down since COVID. I don't even know what percentages a client of mine who's the CEO, CEO, CEO of Lesson Loop, Nona Ullman, has mentioned this all the time, student engagement. There's a podcast out of ours with uh, one of my clients, Phil Maycomer, and she talked about this. And it's just like, 
it's really concerning. It absolutely does. And um, <laughs> I'm living proof. I have to say that I'm done with religion, mm -hmm. but I'm not done with God. Yes. And I had to separate all of that because I was raised, I'm a preacher's kid times too. Mm -hmm. So I was raised in this atmosphere and this is what you're supposed to do and this is how you're supposed to act. And, you know, we don't talk about these things and we don't talk. And Hi, everyone, and welcome to Feel, Deal, and Heal, Reinventing Yourself After Loss with our host, Dr. Mary. Dr. Mary, how are you? And as I talk about each and every episode of this podcast, I learn more about what you do, how you're able to lead people through the process of going through a loss, mm -hmm. reinventing themselves after this loss, and knowing that it's not going to disappear. It's part of us, and we have to understand that so that it makes our decisions in our lives, changes who we are as human beings, and it's okay to grieve. And it's mm -hmm. okay to grieve on any type of loss. Yes, Neil. Hello to you, and I am happy to see you again today. And, you know, I am very thrilled to, to, to be having these conversations because it's something that needs to be talked about. And I never really realized until I've gone through a, a number of losses that how loss is restricted. Generally, it's just restricted to death and, and whatever. So we are going to, you know, I'm here to help change the narrative as well as to help expand the whole uh, definition around grief and loss and what that means. But before we do any of that, what I'd like to do is to welcome today's guest. Our special guest today is Julie Durr. And Julie is a nurse who is soon going to be celebrating her 40 years in the profession. She's an entrepreneur, a health and wellness coach, a natural medicine doctoral student, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and friend. And she's got some marvelous goals and aspirations. Uh, she loves God and she loves people, especially orphans. And she wants to be able to foster healthy relationships, wholesome relationships. She's also wanting to create a scholarship fund for orphans in Nakande, Nakande, Zambia, as well as a health and wellness center there. And she wants to create safe spaces for women who are experiencing domestic violence, trauma, and abuse. And she also wants to create jobs for human trafficked young girls. She's an advocate to end the stigma surrounding mental health, the woman after my own heart, because you know that's how <laughs> I am, feel like that. And her most impressive achievements to date are not only surviving every category of abuse, but thriving and creating the life that she has always dreamed of. So I want to say, give you a hearty welcome, Julie Durr. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us today to have this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Mary, so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about grief and loss and um, you know, the, how loss is, 
Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mike Velarde. So I'm Sykes. Welcome to the program, Mike Velarde. Mike, I'm already upset with you. you tell me, don't tell me Ed Lynch's background. He said, hey, I got my buddy here, Ed Lynch. Ed, welcome to the show. What's up with you, Mike? Jeez, this is the this is the problem. And Ed's probably like, Thank hey, you. you know, on the Neil Haley show, this, you know, your co-host with Neil Haley, who's Neil Haley. And Ed's like, whatever, whatever. Mike doesn't tell anything. Just come on my show. Well, you know, I'm the number 12 celebrity podcaster in the world, according to Feedspot, Ed. So uh, back to Mike. Oh, nice. Yeah. What topic are we going to talk about today, Mike? Well, we, we, I, I want to ask Ed about those, those new documents they found in Mike Pence's house and, and what's going on with this entire investigation. Holy cow. It is just a menagerie of them trying to get rid of Biden. I mean, and now they're... I, they're going to justify it by saying, well, we're getting rid of Trump, so we got to treat him honestly, and now we're going to have to get rid of Biden, too. And I don't know why they want to get rid of Pence. I mean, Pence kind of ratted himself out, but not for nothing. If Hillary Clinton can bleach bit her stuff and throw her stuff and burn them and beat everything with a hammer like Paul Pelosi, then I don't understand, you know, why he would call up and say, hey, not for nothing. I got these documents. I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, I don't know, maybe they got lost or something. So it's just crazy. But there's a lot of differences. And people say there's a lot of differences because they want to talk about what it is that, you know, how Biden is way better. So Trump's documents were, you know, he was fighting to keep them. Well, that, that means everybody knew he had them. Whereas with Biden, they're like, well, he immediately turned himself in and, and, and told the authorities that they were there. Dude, Trump's Mar-a-Lago is arguably the second most protected house in the United States, if not the world. Right. So his documents are protected by, oh yeah, um, those guys in the Secret Service, which when you have a SCIF, the F stands for facility. And the reason why a president can always have any documents he wants is because for the most part, he's always surrounded by Secret Service. So no matter what room he's in, it's a secure facility. Anyway, Whereas Biden, contrasting that, has got him in his garage and over here at, at his school that was paid for by Chinese money. Oh, but wait, it wasn't paid for by Chinese money. They gave the money to the school, not to his think tank, which is an oxymoron when you're mentioning Biden. We're back to the Neil Haley show, also simulcasted with The Love Is podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of The Love Is Kim Sorrell, Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest today. Neil, I'm doing great. Thank you so much. And I am excited for so many reasons. Rose, first of all, I love your name. I've got a granddaughter, Rosemary, one of my favorite names in the whole world. But when I was trying to figure out my locker combination, you were writing a script at 14 years old. You started so young in the business and you've done so much in it seems like not a huge long period of time. And uh, you play characters that are, I don't think easy, you know, like you've dealt, you've dealt with racism, you've dealt with other things. And then now you are starring in A Thousand Tomorrows, uh, which looks like it's gonna be absolutely fantastic and natural for you because Nashville, Tennessee grew up on a farm, I believe, right? So you've probably been riding horses your whole life because you sure look like you've been riding horses your whole life. So Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Can't wait to hear about what you think about A Thousand Tomorrows. 
Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, yes, that's true. I did. I did grow up on a ranch in uh, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and had horses my whole life. So this was this was so much fun being able to to be a part of a show like this that that I was able to you know work with these animals and and kind of show show their talents as well, which was it was just so awesome. Uh, but yeah, I I did. I started writing 